This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Hi, welcome to our podcast. I'm Mark Elliott Stein, Technology Director for World Beyond War. Today's episode 46 was inspired by a tweet, just a random tweet that I happened to see flying by two days ago as I was making my rounds on social media. The tweeter is the excellent anti-war and anti-imperialism activist and journalist Caitlin Johnstone, who I recommend you follow, though I know very little about who she is outside of Twitter, where she writes from Melbourne, Australia. She's controversial on Twitter for boldly calling out USA's hypocrisy in claiming to support a peaceful world order while meddling in, escalating against, threatening, encircling, sanctioning, denying life-saving COVID vaccines to, drone attacking, and literally invading so many countries around the world. Calling out USA for this is apparently a controversial and minority opinion on Elon Musk's Twitter today. Well, let's not even get into the topic of Elon Musk or social media right now. We'll have to cover that in another episode. I consider Caitlin Johnstone one of the most important journalists on planet Earth today. And I should say that I'm speaking only for myself when I say this and in everything I say on this podcast. I guess I should also clarify that for today's topic, I'm speaking here not only from the point of view of a citizen of the Earth, which is what I am in my heart. It's the only citizenship I care about. But specifically, as a frustrated and enraged citizen of so-called USA, because the urgent need for revolutionary change in USA is basically our topic here today. And I'm calling this episode No Exit, because there is an exit, or at least there is an exit strategy, as we'll discuss soon. My final disclaimer, I want to make it clear that while I often call attention to USA's problems, and Caitlin Johnstone does too. It's a plain truth that USA's sociopathic economy and bought and sold government and garbage Supreme Court are no worse than those of many European nations and Latin American nations and African nations and Asian nations. It's not just USA where we need peaceful revolutionary change and fast. Well, somehow, even though she's halfway across the world from me, Caitlin Johnstone seems to always find the words to express the frustration I sometimes feel myself boiling over with lately as our planet continues to allow economic rivalries to morph into military rivalries that seem likely to plunge into World War III on various horrifying battlefronts, and as ludicrously dishonest and one-sided pro-USA, anti-Russia, anti-China coverage of several multi-sided wars dominates media coverage to a really unhealthy extent. As an anti-war activist, I hold every government on earth accountable for the wars currently in Europe, Asia, Africa, the Middle East. Yes, every government. But I don't need to use my podcast to single out Russia for one military atrocity, the invasion of Ukraine, when my own rotten government is lying about its role in aggressively escalating this war and creating the conditions that made the Russia-Ukraine war inevitable. It's no lie that Russia's invasion of Ukraine was an evil act of war. And like every evil act of war, this one will destroy vulnerable, innocent lives while enriching the powerful and will only lead to more wars because every war plants the seeds for the next war, just as the seeds for this war were planted by two world wars on the same ground. It's no lie that Russia's invasion of Ukraine was evil, but it sure is a lie that Russia's invasion of Ukraine was unprovoked. It was eagerly provoked by NATO and by fossil fuel profiteers, and by weapons profiteers. And the history of this Russia-Ukraine war begins in 2014, not 2022. It's really something how our mainstream media constantly parrots the lie that this war was unprovoked. 
USA and NATO have been whipping up weapons sales in any capital city where they can get a meeting for longer than most of us have been alive. They're all too happy to provide weapons to both sides of a war. The global war and weapons industry is a collaboration between U.S., Russia, Saudi Arabia, Iran, China, UK, and many other players, a collaboration, an elaborate dance, a highly profitable joint enterprise between all the warring nations of the world, all of which prop themselves up through corrupt paybacks from the weapons industry that they keep alive. And when this powder keg of weapons blows up in February 2022, these liars claim that Russia's invasion was unprovoked. What bullshit. What utter bullshit. It's when I get enraged about this that I take solace in the voices of a few brave journalists out there who do speak the truth. I mean, I guess this is what social media is good for, at least for me, because when I read each day's news, I really feel a need to communicate with other human beings who are able to call out the lies, just to help me realize that I'm not alone and I'm not crazy. Well, here, with a little background music from our Roger Waters opera, added just for fun, is the tweet that got me thinking a whole lot a couple of days ago, and ended up inspiring everything I plan to talk about now here today. Posted by Caitlin Johnstone, at Caitlin Johnstone, in late March 2023. We don't actually need to accept that the world's major powers are going to be engaging in increasingly dangerous brinkmanship with each other throughout the foreseeable future. Empire propagandists keep telling us we need to lay back and accept this, but we don't. This trajectory towards war and nuclear holocaust is being driven by people within the U.S. government and its allies, and there are a whole lot more of us than there are of them. We can turn this ship away from the iceberg anytime we wish to. We've just got to want it enough. We've just got to want it enough. We don't need to accept. Yes. Yes, yes. What strikes me first about this great tweet is that it isn't telling us anything we don't already know. It's reminding us of what we know, but we often choose to forget. We the people, we have power. When we know our government is corrupt and incompetent and incoherent and is driving our future off a cliff, we have power. When we know that our so-called police aren't protecting us, but instead are aggressively over-policing and harassing us to protect the wealthy and already over-protected. We have the power to choose our own social structures to keep our neighborhoods safe. We have the power to reject and defund and replace so-called police forces that aren't there to help us. We have power. When we gradually realize after hopeful election after hopeful election that our elected officials work not for the voters, but for wealthy donors who supply the billions of dollars with which they lock up elections before we, the voters, even get a chance to choose the candidates who pretend to represent us. I mean, these politicians, they just sort of announce themselves like here in USA, it's basically like, hi, I'm Stanley, whatever. I have the support of the 10 largest mega corporations and all the newspapers and TV news shows and radio shows and a law degree from Harvard and a perfect haircut. So you and your neighbors will be electing me or else you'll be electing this guy next to me who looks exactly like me and has the same haircut, the same Harvard law degree. <sighs> these, these elected officials are delivered to us, handed to us. We don't know what happened to the promise of real democracy that some of us once believed in. But this ain't it. And Donald Trump ain't it either. A democracy cannot produce a government as rotten as the USA is today. 
And we have the power to replace this broken system with a fair one person, one vote, real democracy, including public campaign funding and what a shocking concept, universal voting rights, so that we can begin to select honorable and honest candidates for elective office. I sometimes find it stunning to think about how much worse the outlook for USA's democracy has looked since, oh, around November 2016. I've spent the years since then getting more involved in political activism, and I now realize I was much too passive and too naive about the situation of our planet through much of my life. Since 2016, our government has revealed so much incompetence and incoherence that it's impossible to avoid the conclusion that USA is collapsing whether we want it to collapse or not. Well, do we want it to collapse? We, the people of the world, could choose to reject the whole deeply ingrained concept of involuntary mass national governance, which is certainly not a necessary condition of human society. Nationalism as we know it today emerged out of Europe's Napoleonic Wars. We got a few great operas and oil paintings out of these wars, but I'm looking at my calendar right now and it's 2023. It's time to end planet Earth's Napoleonic phase and stop believing that we belong to these things called nations and that these things called nations are so important that we will kill each other and allow ourselves to be killed for their sake. It's time to allow a more natural, organic, and human-scaled form of voluntary societal governance to flourish all over the planet, a form of governance that actually helps human beings and allows freedom of choice as to what kind of personal life we want to personally live without impacting the different life choices of others. We have the power to create this form of governance all over the world. Some think I'm talking fantasy here, or talking nonsense. I understand why some people might think there's no point in talking about reinventing governance itself and moving beyond defining ourselves as citizens of warring nations devoted to killing each other. Nationalism is too deeply ingrained, some people may argue. We'll never get past it, even though it would be great if we could. I understand this pessimism, but I believe that we actually will have a revolution of governance around the world, a positive, peaceful revolution. One reason I believe this is that I'm pretty sure the alternative is World War III and nuclear holocaust, because that's where the Trumps and Bidens and Putins are driving us together. We have to reinvent governance or we will soon all die. That's one reason I think we will find a way to reinvent governance. Another reason I'm an optimist is that I'm a technologist, and I've seen a few technological revolutions in my lifetime. The internet was the biggest revolution, and the world sure did change in the 1990s when digital online culture suddenly spread all over the world. One of the pillars of the internet revolution was replacing hierarchical top-down structures with peer-to-peer -peer architectures. In the pre-internet world, there were many consumers and few producers. In a peer-to-peer -peer world, we all participate in a shared internet on the basis of equal access, community leadership, human values, and bottom-up governance structures. The pre-internet world was centralized information, top-down, one way. Once the internet made it possible for decentralized, bottom-up, two-way information architectures to thrive, these decentralized structures became immensely popular and began to dominate their space. The cultural change happened as soon as the technology for peer-to-peer -peer information architecture made it possible in the early 1990s. No salesman had to sell the internet. People understood immediately what it was, and they went to it. Well, today, we have the technology for peer-to-peer -peer decentralized governance. 
And just as the technology for peer-to-peer decentralized information created a revolution, I believe it also provides the human race a model for peer-to-peer government, which is a far cry from the cesspool of corruption and ill-gotten wealth that is Washington, D.C. today, and really every major national capital city today. Remember, nobody becomes a billionaire when you live in a society that respects peer-to-peer relationships. Technology metaphors say a lot. I know I've said at least five times on previous podcast episodes that open source software development provides a great model for political activism. The teams that once created Linux and the World Wide Web proved the superiority of collaborative, cooperative work structures over corporate greed and conformity. I experienced this myself during the early internet period I'm talking about, the early 1990s, when I was working as a software engineer on Wall Street. If you saw me at work exactly 30 years ago, You would have seen a young guy in a sharp suit and shiny black shoes taking the subway every day to headquarters of banks like J.P. Morgan, Shearson Lehman, and Payne Weber. This was long before I got my shit together enough to become a peace activist who is self-employed and only works for organizations he has respect for. What I did specifically on Wall Street 30 years ago was help banks replace old, monolithic, gigantic IBM mainframe computers running monolithic, gigantic mainframe databases in glass rooms with newer trading systems built on lightweight, inexpensive Unix servers running relational databases, with software and hardware provided not by big IBM, but by small startups, including the one I personally worked for. This was a big change for Wall Street, a software revolution, and it was what I worked on every day for several years. The old COBOL programmers at the banks sure hated us new guys because we were writing C++ code on Sun workstations, and they knew they had missed the bus. Well, the reason I'm dredging up all this history now is that we had a great word to describe the new software paradigm we were representing. That word was relational, relational databases. Relational is the opposite of hierarchical. Relational databases don't enforce notions of hierarchy, and they don't encourage walling off some parts of a database from other parts. Everything is wide open in a relational database. A cat may look at a king. The whole point is to make connections between diverse kinds of data. So I hope I'm not going too deep into this techie stuff, but it's meaningful that the concepts that created an information revolution 30 years ago, peer-to-peer architecture with equal access, relational databases that encourage connections between diverse data sets can also help us create a governance revolution today. What peer-to-peer means on a network or file sharing level what relational means on a database level. Maybe this is what peacemaking and diplomacy and reconciliation and compromise mean on a global political level. We have the technology and we have the power. This includes the power of our own creativity, our own voices, our own words. We know, we know that here in the USA, our so-called news and journalism ecosystem from cable news to books to radio to newspaper to social media tech giants, is essentially pro-war and pro-fascist, not only because war and hate speech spewing dictators bring big ratings and sales, but also because CBS, NBC, ABC, CNN, Fox, Washington Post, and New York Times are all bought and sold by the same channels of vast wealth, wealth often extracted from fossil fuels, weapons sales, predatory financial activities that buy and sell politicians, and legislators. When we realize together and acknowledge together that we know we're being lied to every day, 
by these well-financed newspapers and magazines and radio stations and social media platforms to support war and fossil fuels and tax policies that only benefit the ultra-wealthy. When we see this clearly, we have the power to throw away these obsolete, laughably insipid corporate media properties and create our own media properties. Again, we have to say these words, we have power. We have the power to promote and support and champion our own investigative journalists. We don't need to wait for the Washington Post and New York Times to select them for us. We can create our own entire popular media and entertainment outlets that don't lie to us to support climate abusers, financial service predators, and weapons suppliers. And speaking of predatory financial systems, when we look around us at the neighborhoods and towns and cities we live in, and we see societies torn by wealth inequality and white-collar grift and corruption. I'm speaking for myself here, talking about what the USA looks like to me. We have the power to call bullshit on an economy, an entire economic system and mindset based on greedy, trickle-down, zero-sum, revolving-door, dog-eat-dog principles that none of us personally believe in. Yes, we do even have the power and the technology to reinvent and redefine money itself, which could mean creating new forms of currency, but doesn't need to mean that because there are a lot of different financial systems that can work in the real world. And in fact, different communities might even prefer to have different kinds of financial systems expressing different values and lifestyles. And we have the power to make that possible. We have the power to pull the plug on suicidal, late-stage, gasoline-powered, planet-destroying capitalism before it destroys us, and maybe we'll even discover greater paths to happiness and fulfillment than the satisfaction of greed and the accumulation of property. I'm sitting here thinking about all of this in a month that just happens to be the 20th anniversary of Bush's disastrous invasion of Iraq, which began in March 2003. And I want to build upon whatever it is that I'm feeling. I want to bottle the emotion that Caitlin Johnstone's simple tweet brought up in me because I want to channel this into action. Yes, we have power. Yes, we have technology. But what good is it if we don't unite it to use our power and our technology to save our lives? I live in a prosperous society that has developed a frightening degree of passivity, a society that seems to have lost the ability to make itself ungovernable, even when we plainly see that our so-called governing class is killing us. I live in a prosperous society of prosperous cowards. We the people need to figure out how to make ourselves ungovernable. And this means we need to think with more clarity and more direction and more force. I've got one more tech metaphor here today. What we need to do politically is galvanize our thinking, both on an individual and collective level. We need to put two and two together, connect the poles, we need to wrap a wire around the positive and the negative and allow the current to flow to allow our disconnected thoughts to create a circuit. This is how we turn our thoughts into motion. We need to make ourselves ungovernable. I don't know exactly how we can begin to do this, but I do know that people are ready for a peaceful revolution of governance. It's time to unplug this mainframe. Many people would see this as a tragedy or a mistake. Well, I don't know exactly what to say to American exceptionalists. I grieve for the American dream I once believed in too, though today I feel like I've changed so much that I can barely imagine who I was back then when I did believe in American propaganda. Shall we grieve together? Oh, USA, my USA, 
I see here an archaic form of government developed and launched in the time of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. I see a form of government based on a set of ideas hobbled together in Philadelphia as a sloppy and opportunistic collaboration between a small group of New England Puritans who hated the Anglican church and weren't crazy about paying taxes, and another small group of super wealthy Virginia and Carolina plantation owners whose gravy train, slaves from Africa to work the farms for free, was about to be ended by moralistic British abolitionists. What could inspire Boston and Virginia to work together? They didn't have common ideals in 1776, but they did have a common goal, unite the colonies and break free of the British Empire to bring economic opportunity to Boston and New York and Philadelphia and keep the profitable institution of slavery out of the reach of moralistic European abolitionists. I'm not saying that USA is a wreck because we haven't updated our basic governmental structures much since the era of Mozart. Nor am I saying that the so-called democracy that arose from this whole slavery and early era capitalism mess didn't have to be cursed by its roots in anti-civilization, pro-slavery escapism. And I do mean escapism. I mean, it's shocking that Virginians thought they could create a permanent home for slavery, race-based slavery across the ocean while Europe was waking up to the need for abolition. I'm not saying that USA's unimpressive history dooms the future of the people who want to find a better way to coexist here today. Any community or society can work through its conflicts, can rise past its disagreements, and every country has a troubled history. I simply think the question to ask is what we must do to save our lives today, here in this strip of land between Canada and Mexico. And what needs to change to allow us to live more healthy and humane lives than we're living today? We must ask ourselves to think harder. I'm thinking about the ending of the Wizard of Oz movie, when the good witch Glinda surprises Dorothy by telling her that she has all the magic she's ever needed all along. In this case, the power is in the red shoes that are already on Dorothy's feet. But she couldn't use that power yet at the beginning of the movie. She needed the experience of walking down the yellow brick road and meeting her fellow strivers on that path to give them together the hard-earned wisdom that would result in her making the solitary decision to use the magic she's already had all along to transport her to where she wants to go. That's the kind of thinking I want us to do here today. I want us to think about the powers we are already wearing on our feet. And I'm thinking about the play No Exit by the great French philosopher, playwright, and political activist Jean-Paul Sartre, which premiered in May 1944 in Paris. Imagine what it means to premiere a play in Paris in 1944. This would be Nazi-occupied Paris, the eye of the hurricane in Europe. The fact that No Exit was produced under Nazi occupation adds a dimension of realism to an already great but abstract and symbolic play. It's not only admirable that Jean-Paul Sartre had the insight to write this play, but also that he and an entire French theater company had the courage to perform it in public. Jean-Paul Sartre was a progressive philosopher, an urban revolutionary, an existentialist idealist, and a socialist. I admire him a lot. No Exit is a conceptual, philosophical play in which three characters who recently died are all brought by a polite attendant into a room, conventional and comfortable in appearance, and led to understand that they are now in hell and that they will spend eternity together here in this small room. These three people have never met each other. One is Garcin, 
a strapping male, a proud anti-fascist journalist and resistance fighter who harbors a dreadful fear that others will find him less manly and impressive than he finds himself. Another is Estelle, a nervous young society woman, now emotionally distraught and still pitifully enmeshed in the petty details of the glamorous world of the living that she has now left behind. We discover that she once secretly killed her own infant child. The trio is completed by Inez, a mature, realistic, and unpretentious former postal clerk who also failed to live well on earth, but is more honest with herself and her two new companions now about the existential eternal horror that faces them in eternal damnation. What that eternal damnation consists of is sort of the whole idea of the play. There are no torture devices or fires or demons in this pleasantly decorated room, and yet we are told that this is hell, and the characters understand that this is true. Why is this comfortable room hell? Because, it turns out, each of the three characters is living a lie, and despite now being dead, all three are still fully enmeshed in their lies and unable to force the other two to affirm their lies. Garcin wants to believe he's a hero, a freedom fighter, but Inez sees through his bravado and calls out the mendacity of his actual lived existence, which is much less impressive than the stories he tells. Inez is a lesbian and yearns for the attention of glamorous Estelle. But Estelle has no interest in Inez. Estelle might be able to lose herself in the escape of a superficial and selfish relationship with Garcin, if only she were alone with him. But Garcin is only able to desperately plead with Inez for her respect, because her awareness of his cowardice is unbearable to him. So, these three paragons of gloom talk and argue and gradually reveal their secrets, and by the end of the play, they come to the conclusion that has become this play's most famous quotation, Hell is other people. This line is often misquoted and misunderstood, though. Jean-Paul Sartre was not himself a gloomy or pessimistic writer. He was the opposite, an idealist, a political optimist, whose philosophical works were designed to encourage the timid masses of humanity to blow past the false truths and white lies and bad faith excuses that can occupy so much of our mental space, and instead simply embrace the truth and reality of existence. The three characters in No Exit are in hell because they want to go on living their lives. Garcin as a macho hero, Inez as a ravishing lover, Estelle as a pampered child. And yet each of the three refuses to allow the other one to live their lies. Hell is other people if and only if you are living a lie. If you are strong enough and brave enough and honest enough to live in truth, Jean-Paul Sartre's play seems to be saying in contrast, it might be possible to form relationships in which heaven is other people. There's a telling moment in this play when the three people discover that the door to this room, the door to their private individualized three-person hell, is not even locked. They are free to walk out the door, each of them together, or any of them alone. Why don't they? Because what they desire, what they can't let go of, is inside the room. The person who can validate their lies is in the room, and they can't leave because they can't see past the blindness created by their lies about themselves. No exit. Or is there an exit? Jean-Paul Sartre urged us to think harder, to fight back against the urge to sink into comfortable patterns of bad faith and denial. 
Today, nobody needs to get past their bad faith and denial more than American exceptionalists. We all need to think harder. Here are three things I think we can try to do to live more truthful and optimistic lives and encourage the possibility of a peaceful revolution everywhere on the planet. First, when we speak, let's pause to consider who are we speaking as. We can help the peace movement by defining our first person in the widest possible way. For instance, who am I? I'm me, a single individual person. I'm also a New Yorker. I'm a Jew. I'm a tech bro. I'm a Long Islander. I'm a Mets fan. Is that enough? What I should be emphasizing above all of this is that I'm a human being and I form a we with every other human being. You may note that I didn't define myself as an American above, but many of my neighbors do. I think it's an absurd idea that we should care more for the well-being of other people because they happen to live in Oklahoma or Rhode Island or West Virginia and not Yemen or Cameroon or Cuba. I would like to care about all people of the world equally. One thing I really value about the organization World Beyond War is that we're a global grassroots organization, emphasis on global, and we really do work hard to reach every corner of the world and connect peace activists across continents across language barriers, across societal barriers, so thick that we can sometimes forget there are other humans out there at all. I'm so thankful for World Beyond War for helping us define ourselves as humans above all, with no regard for borders or barriers. I wish others would actively jump upon this trend. The second question that I believe is helpful, do we believe that good and evil are essential? Many philosophers do. Jean-Paul Sartre was an existentialist and certainly did not find meaning in labels like good and evil. To Sartre, and I think to existentialists in general, a commitment to honesty and truthfulness is the starting point for an authentic life. And the biggest distinction would be between harsh truth and comfortable self-denial, not between good and evil. I propose that the world's anti-war movement does its best when it also avoids concepts of essential good versus evil and instead searches for paths to reconciliation and forgiveness for all human beings or groups, even in former war zones where horrible injustice and violence took place. Reconciliation is an important part of peace building, and forgiveness is a word that should never go out of fashion. And I'm sorry if that's as corny as I get. Let's just say this is one area where Jesus of Nazareth really got it right. Forgiveness is a key to world peace. Beyond forgiveness, we need generosity. We know that happiness and prosperity are not zero-sum games. We know it's possible for all societies on earth to coexist in peace. What some rightfully call evil is often actually the reflection of society's evil within us. And for this reason, let's avoid pointing fingers at each other as much as we can. It's no small point that we all carry legacies of evil, hatred, violence, injustice, horror, all of us. We may reflect our parents' and grandparents' legacy of national pride and military service. We may hold on to remnants of the injustices inflicted upon our ancestors and even inflicted upon ourselves. These are society's evils, but we make the mistake of internalizing these evils and allowing them to define us. Instead, we must understand the responsibility to address and cure and resolve the evils of society rather than to allow this evil to occupy our souls. Our society's evil invades our privacy. It threatens our integrity and our honesty. But again, when we have the courage to face our harsh truths, 
we see that we cannot absolve ourselves of the legacies of the past. So we must begin with forgiveness. I believe this is the path to greater truthfulness and therefore the path to peace. Finally, do we believe our actions can have impact? This is especially difficult with the threats of climate change and nuclear apocalypse that discourage us today. But I propose we must believe that they do. This is my third principle. We must always remember that the future is not yet written. That door is wide open. I see it right now. Garcena, Nastel, and Inez may not join us, or maybe they will. I think they will. Either way, let's go forward out that door together. Thanks for letting me ramble through episode 46 of the World Beyond War podcast, which happened spontaneously after my planned interview fell through. I'll see you next month with more exciting stuff. Thanks again for believing in the possible future existence, for real, of a world beyond war. I'm sick and tired of hearing things from uptight, short-sighted, narrow-minded hypocrites. All I want is the truth. Just give me some truth. I've had enough of reading things by new body, psychotic, big-headed politics. All I want is the truth. Just give me some truth. No short head. much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.